0: So are we dealing with, basically, with artificial intelligence craft, silica craft? So these would be, you know, what they call um, large silica networks. So and we know that's the direction of our own technology. There's also the expectation of advanced aliens is that they will use these large silica networks. In other words, um, housing artificial intelligence in vast objects, right?
1: Listening to the Spectral Skull Session, tales from the twilight world of myth, mystery, and imagination. The idea behind this podcast is that we explore claims about the occult, supernatural, and paranormal from an analytical standpoint. We're open to the existence of a world beyond the five senses, and we dismiss that dogmatic skepticism that insists that any story about the unexplained has to reduce to hallucinations or swamp gas but we're not committed to any particular theory or philosophy about what the paranormal is and we realize that whatever is out there the answer is likely to be more complicated than any existing model or theory what we bring to the table is small s skepticism a skepticism that we throw as much on the mainstream accounts as we do on the supernatural story okay let's get started
2: well, I'm very excited, everybody, to welcome back to the show, Bruce Fenton, author of Exogenesis. And now he's author at brucefenton.substack.com, working on the hybrid human extraterrestrial hypothesis. Welcome back to the show, Bruce Fenton.
0: Thank you very much. It's a pleasure to return. And, um, you know, hopefully your audience will be interested in, you know, some updates. So yeah, I look forward to the chat.
2: Yes. The first thing I wanted to say... um, you know, the last episode you were on is like our most popular episode we've ever had.
0: Oh, okay, uh, cool. We've had
2: thousands of downloads, and um, it seems to be a really uh, exciting topic, a topic people are really interested in finding out about, and uh, especially people – got a lot of people in Germany downloading the show. Bill Coleman to our German listeners.
0: Um, well, um, my book, Exogenesis Hybrid Humans, is also in German because I, have a, I separately had a deal with a publisher – over there so that's probably why and so you're continuing in that great european
2: tradition of the ancient aliens right going back to eric von dynakin and uh morning of the magicians there was a french uh editorial french uh, journal put out morning of the magicians
0: yeah and it's funny because of course that book has a forward from eric von dynakin so it's a nice kind of tie-in
2: oh that's right yes your book did have that's part of why i first read it i first picked it up because i said von Dineken wrote the forward so i should read this so I wanted to talk to you today just how the research has been progressing. Maybe we should start actually for you uh would you be able to just refresh the audience on what your theory is and what the state of your research is?
0: Sure. I mean there's a, I could say it's sort of multi-pronged, but um the overview is the idea that we have had a kind of a contact event happen. Now, so this goes back to some claims. So we start with some claims that cannot be Entirely verified, and that's that um, some individuals in Australia had an interaction with an artifact called a churinga. Now, a churinga, in terms of the anthropological understanding, you know, is, is usually a small kind of handheld stone, sometimes wood, artifact that is um, sacred to some of the Aboriginal tribes or nations around Uluru. I think it's about three different nations that have a tradition of these, and that they consider the churinga. To be essentially replicas of original artifacts that were left by the Outringer beings, the first kind of the first beings of this creation time that walked on the earth, created some of the life, created some of the landscape features. You know this whole kind of dreaming lore, um which is quite complex to be honest to explain. But so out of that milieu of dreaming lore, there is this set of stories about these beings leaving these initial triggers and in fact, they also say that the, some of these beings. Became the Turingas. And so these are living artifacts. They're like, more like a being than simply an artifact. Now, in more modern Aboriginal culture, they're seen as a communication kind of stone, that they're message carrying, that they also contain information, and that they have some kind of living sentient presence to them. They would normally be kept in caves away from the general population. There's taboos around looking on Turingas, touching them. Uh, you know, only a high kind of elders. Uh, we call clever fellows and, you know, it's kind of a shamanic role that these people would interact with them during sacred times and bring them out, access this consciousness, this information. Now, that's an interesting kind of crossover between a spiritual worldview and our kind of modern technological worldview, because we could take that same kind of description and think of a Bracewell Sentinel probe, which is a hypothetical technological object from an extraterrestrial civilization that would be sent to uh, planets with biospheres and they can sit there and monitor the planet and then at a point in its development these these hypothetical ai probes could then make contact and act as, you know, as like the emissary or ambassador for a civilization. And there's an interesting paper by Ronald Bracewell, the engineer, uh, which he published in 1960, where he talks about this and this idea that there may be some kind of web of advanced civilization out there sending these probes out to monitor worlds and to make contact with new civilizations. So to long story short, I suspect the description they have of their interaction with this object and a supposed download with a whole lost history component to it may be an encounter with an extraterrestrial Bracewell Sentinel Probe right all very very wild stuff now in a way that's at that point it's a sort of you know believe it or not take it or leave it because you know I can't prove that but what's been really interesting is some of the claims that were contained in this original story uh, was so vast in scope that they did have a potential for me to look and see whether they maybe stack up. Now, the big ones there were the account of a large sort of megastructure, a silica AI megastructure that arrived to our world hundreds of thousands of years ago. And I'll come to the dating on that, but hundreds of thousands of years ago, and that this was then in orbit and was later destroyed in orbit. And it's said to have rained down a kind of a, a crystalline molten debris across you know a large part of the planet. thought well that's a big event and then there was also a description of a multi-directional asteroid bombardment which was said to have been deliberate so it wasn't an accidental event which is just a few years after this destruction and the third one which I suppose in some ways is the, the biggest one is the idea that some of the surviving beings from this craft came down and ended up involving themselves in the evolutionary processes of early hominins and essentially um you could say gave you know gave rise or gave birth to us the large-brained homo sapiens um, and so that they modified the uh, the embryos of some early hominins and gave us the brain that we have today so an incredible set of claims an incredible backstory um on the face of it no reason to believe any of it so then i took that and i went looking into the Geological records and the you know, genetic you know, data that we have out there uh, to see whether there was any basis to any of this, and you know, sort of in the end, I found enough to make me compelled to take this seriously and to think that it it probably is true. That's my kind of position. But of course, now it goes to the public and the science world to see is there enough to substantiate um, such a story. Even if we dismiss the initial account of how this started you know is it on its own merits is there enough to suggest that we have material that indicates an alien megastructure is there enough evidence to suggest somebody or something has interfered in the genomes of course that's what it really comes down to now because in science people aren't so interested in stories as you know absolutely science
2: is about hypothesis and evidence so you have two very different lines of evidence that support this extraordinary theory uh, this theory about the spaceship crashing into the earth and survivors altering the human genome. You have the geological and archaeological evidence and the genetic evidence, and they converge. Let's start with the geological-archeological. You've been studying these mysterious silica stones that seem to support the story of a crashed spaceship, these tektites uh, found in Asia and Australia. Can I ask you about the tektites, then? Um any, any updates on the tectites? So, because when you say that you think that they could be bracewell probes, um, has there been any updates on uh, attempting to unlock or activate, interact, any strange properties that are associated with any of the
0: tektites? Sorry, just to, to clarify that the churinga artifacts is what I suggest could be a bracewell probe. Um, the the Turinga is not a Tektite. Turinga is a hand uh, a handheld, usual oval artifact, which will have um, typically spirals and other geometric patterns engraved into the top surface and is considered a communication stone. So this is a, a of completely separate. Um, the Tektites are small pieces of, of molten glass that have solidified during uh, flight, um, during, you know, from an explosive, initial explosive event. So Tektites, are usually very small, but they can go up to a few kilos uh, in some cases, but you have them in multiple shapes. So you'll have dumbbell shapes, spheres, teardrop shapes, um, ablated spheres, disc shapes. And so you'll find that these are actually spread all the way from China, southern China, in you know, what's called a, a strewn field, and this spreads all the way down to Antarctica. And so you've got uh, millions, billions, perhaps even, you know, to trillions of tons of debris that are rained down across around a twelve thousand kilometer long pathway you know all the way down there and also out to the sides to madagascar and out beyond Papua into the ocean you find microtectites as well in ocean core samples and microtectites are less than a millimeter across um, so it's an enormous strewn field it covers around 20 percent of the earth's surface and, and for people that aren't too familiar with Tectite glasses. Uh, Tectite glasses are, are in themselves are quite anomalous because we have two main categories of glass. Of course, like natural glasses, artificial glasses. Okay, so artificial glasses would be you know man-made glass that we use for tableware and you know industry and whatnot. And so we know how that we take materials for that, we heat them in a um, you know an industrial process, and you mix them, you off gas volatiles which you don't want you know you can remove chemicals you don't want until you have what's called fined glass and so that's the process called fining uh, and that will give you a homogenous you know well mixed fined glass okay then you have blast glasses from bombs and particularly from nuclear bombs so most people will be somewhat familiar with trinitite which is a nuclear blast glass right so that again is, a, is of course is a man-made glass trinitite is very different to our cableware glass because that has been created in a short-lived high energy event so that is, so although the material at the blast site gets i think super hot and it melts sand rock whatever's there the cooling happens quite fast you know it's not sitting in, you know in a you know, industrial vat I mean you know heated it, so it has a very quick cooling period and so what you tend to find is that this glass is very foamy so it's full of lots of bubbles so it's where the the gassing process has begun but then this 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 melt becomes quite you know, thick and it starts to cool and it traps these bubbles of gas that are trying to escape and so you end up with this really bubbly foamy mess and also it contains inclusions of partially melted rock and unmelted rock and in some cases you know, organic inclusions like soil right uh, and it's also it's not very well mixed so it's heterogeneous rather than homogeneous, because again you you haven't really got the time for that kind of mixing to occur Right, so so that's your artificial glasses, and then with your natural glasses, you've got like fulgurite, which is from lightning strikes into sand, and that's very heterogeneous. Uh, it's very, very quite looks really unlike a glass; really. it looks kind of like a stone. But if anyone's familiar with fulgurites, um, so usually it's just a silica that's been rapidly melted where lightning hits sand. That's again is is not very well mixed. You know, it's uh, so not fine it's a very short-lived high energy event and you have volcanic glass right and so volcanic glass sits in a caldera and it's heated for an extended period of time so the rock is melted to you know a very homogeneous kind of mix and also there's outgassing of volatiles so it has a kind of a process so anyone's familiar with you know volcanic glass you know it looks more like artificial glass and the reason for that is because it's actually forming in a in a process that's very similar to how we create artificial glass, right? So that is not a bubbly material. That is not a heterogeneous material. Um, now, in between that, you have this kind of strange tectite glass, because in most most of the popular kind of arguments, it's considered to be probably a natural glass from asteroid impacts right now obviously I'm arguing it's not but in most of the papers you'll find it's argued that it's from these these asteroid impact events now we know that when asteroids impact they certainly do melt rock and they certainly do create glass and there are there are several hundred um, impact sites around the world and at many of these you find melt glass okay but where we have confirmed melt glass in craters that melt glass is foamy is heterogeneous contains part melt contains unmelted rock contains organics all the things that, that you get with a nuclear explosion right very very similar kinds of glass because again short-lived high energy event no time for mixing no time for the, the full outgassing so you have this whereas when we look at the tectites. They are very, very similar to volcanic glass and to man-made glass. So there's there's obviously there's a conundrum there, right? Because if we're saying that these are formed in an asteroid impact, then why is it then when we find confirmed asteroid impact glasses, they are not like that? And we understand the, the physics behind why they're not like that. Because there isn't time. You'd need this to sit and pool and to be heated over an extended period to eventually form a well-fined glass. Okay? So, I mean, that's probably somewhat long, and, but a necessary description, because people have to understand that this is the reason why that tectites have been considered a mysterious type of glass for almost 200 years for this reason. So, there's been all kinds of hypotheses thrown at this topic, everything from um, I've seen descriptions of, of, of was it, uh, antimatter events of a long lost civilizations glass culture uh, you know, certainly comets impacting some kind of rock passing through the upper atmosphere and melting in the upper atmosphere um, you know, over the you know over over those decades lots and lots of different hypotheses were suggested and even today the current situation is there is not a fully accepted explanation for their their kind of their composition formation and distribution because it just does not mesh with the expectations there are about four different tectite strewn fields possibly five but there's accepted to be at least four strewn fields so in the whole vast period of known geological history we have only four different types of tectite okay so again that's strange because if these are you know occurring fairly regularly in impacts you'd expect to have more of them so there's obviously something different happening for tektites right so whereas we, we see a lot more of this other impact glass and we understand how it forms and it looks exactly the way we'd expect it to look and then in these few instances we find the tektites and now the tektites are not found in asteroid craters right they are found far from them so at least the nearest think in my understanding is a couple of hundred kilometers away from an impact site so they are considered to be distal ejector of asteroid impacts and um, as such a number of novel hypotheses have been suggested for how they could have formed and how they've reached the locations they are at usually involving a hypervelocity impact at an angle of around about 30 degrees that hits just the surface rock melts that surface rock and projects it off at an angle that uh, causes it to travel relatively far but there is a there's a again there's a physical constraint problem here because when you have a projectile kind of launch of this material, obviously it has an opposing force, it's traveling through atmosphere, and also you know it's defying gravity as well as you know going up against air pressure ahead of it, right So no matter how fast the initial speed is, eventually it's equalized by the force ahead of it. And the, the the lower the angle, the denser the atmosphere ahead of it. The higher the angle, of course, the further it has to travel to get to that remote location. So that's why it comes to this idea that 30 degrees is about the optimum. But even then, that, of course, does not explain material traveling for thousands of kilometers.
2: It seems like the entire archaeological world, uh, geological archaeological world, is on board with the idea that different kinds of astronomical events they cause different kinds of geological things right so like the asteroid that killed the dinosaurs um we believe that that basically hit in in maybe shallow water and then it threw up a lot of mud and dust which you know that we can find today as a dust layer and there's iridium but it's and it seems like they've been coming to the view that there's different types of impacts and it sounds like um hit the rock layer hard enough fast enough with an object from space they think they get these tektites right these particular kinds of rocks that are sometimes shaped kind of like ufos right they'll be shaped with the the sphere with the flanges on the side and you know and they can explain that in terms of rocks from the earth going into space and then coming back down
0: um loosely this
2: this is kind of where we're at though right in terms of the uh geological archaeological work that there are these four fields that they agree correspond to like something different from the kinds of impacts that killed the dinosaurs or that um, caused the North American floods in the late Pleistocene, and you just have a different view of it.
0: Well, I mean, yeah, because there's a hard problem here, right? There's a there's a physics problem which they have to resolve, and and that is that you cannot have fine homogenous glass without a process that gives you fine homogenous glass, and we know that that process, in all of the understanding for physics and Moses law and stuff that governs this process is that you need time for this material in a heated environment to mix thoroughly for the the volatiles to escape and to to end up with this really fine, homogenous glass. So that takes time. So there's, this is why it's a hard problem. So it's not just a case of that I'm saying, you know, I have a different take that they have a problem that they haven't resolved. And this was um, why for many years There was a competing hypothesis that this was lunar glass and because the lunar glass hypothesis gets around this problem is the idea that
2: it's the idea that the the moon the moon is already it already would have had would have had tektite on it
0: essentially yeah that you have volcanic glass on the moon right so when the asteroid hit these volcanoes this volcanic glass material on the moon it dislodged it and sent either a large piece or a swarm towards earth and that then this glass rained down because that got them around the problem of how on earth do you end up with a fine homogenous glass in a short-lived high energy event which we have no no demonstrated way of this happening right this is why i say this is a hard problem. it's not just that i'm being a bit difficult because i'm you know fringe research they have a hard problem here and if you look through the literature it's not resolved There's, there's some exotic solutions offered but they are not well accepted and they all of them have flaws in them right and there's not many even suggested solutions to this it remains as an anomaly uh, that you could you you have to be able to explain it you can't just say well somehow during this asteroid impact that happened you know because that is you know that's not a scientific answer to say you know that somehow that happened you have to to say how has this overcome a really hard barrier that we know that these kinds of glasses need an extended period of heating. They need to be essentially swirling around, you know, in a pool normally, like, you know, in a volcanic caldera or in an industrial you know, unit or somewhere in you know, a pool of heated material that is remaining hot enough for those gases to escape. And we can see that doesn't normally happen in asteroid impacts because we have these foamy glasses at all these impact sites, right? So, so this is, really is a hard problem. And, you know, I'm giving a a solution. The NASA guys gave one. Theirs collapsed. And that was because, in the end, we realized that the the lunar surface didn't provide the right uh, components for this glass. And on top of that, it was pointed out that if this material came from the moon, firstly, if you had a swarm of glass, right, this swarm would be destabilized by the interactions of solar Um, energy solar gravity that it would be disrupted and so you'd end up with this enormous swarm that would rain down all over the planet and also some of it would end up on the moon and you know flying around the solar system and so it would just be totally disrupted
2: yeah you wouldn't have it
0: wouldn't no it wouldn't rain down just across from china to antarctica that it just wouldn't happen like that Uh, and then on top of that he said well and if it was a chunk that chunk would break up in the atmosphere and it would end up being over a very small area so it's just over a few, I think it's over a few kilometres or so, right? So you'd end up with a, a very focused strewn field. But this is enormous. It's a twelve thousand kilometre long strewn field. So, so it can't be from a singular chunk that breaks up in the atmosphere, and it can't be from a swarm. And the material on the moon wasn't, you know, right. And on top of that, it turned out volcanic activity on the moon, you know, is, is very, very ancient. And there's no way that this would fit with the dates for the, particularly for the Australasian strewn field, which is dated at seven hundred eighty-eight thousand years ago. There is no Volcanic activity on the moon that would explain that time scale, even in a scenario where somehow this happened. So for all those reasons, the lunar hypothesis was abandoned. Right. And so by default, the opposing hypothesis became the accepted theory. Right. So it wasn't that it was better. And I said, a point that people have to understand. It, it didn't win on its merits. It, it was like, I was considered, uh, considered like a, a boxing match where, you know, the one guy has a heart attack and he dies. And you say, yes, the other guy's the champion, but he didn't throw the best punch. You know, it's just there's no one else standing. So that became the default. Now, it uh, doesn't mean it's right. And that's why they've been stuck with all these anomalies in this, this hypothesis. For donkeys ears. And there's you can feel there's hundreds of papers out there on this topic where everyone has thrown their minds at this. You know, engineers, rocket scientists, geologists, and, you know, all, all kinds of people have thrown their minds at this problem because it's an interesting, hard problem, right? And so what you get to is in the end, there isn't a good explanation for how you can do this. So you have to have the material is launched off, you know, into space. It has to travel through in space. Right? Because it's traveled 12,000 kilometers. So you, you know that there is a hard barrier. I think 600 kilometers is the furthest that material can travel from an impact site in a, in a normal impact right event. So there's an, this is kind of the upper limit. right? So they know that it has to have traveled outside the atmosphere to get to this kind of length. Now, there's a few problems straight away with this because, first of all, it should go up and come down a, sim, a similar angle. This is a point out by some of the, the physics guys at NASA. That, But instead, it's like, well, this is suddenly seems to be in orbit because the the angles that you require to have the tech type buttons which you referred to the buttons are the kind of the flying saucer looking pieces they are signatures of material traveling essentially horizontal to the plane of the planet i.e. orbital paths because they have to come in at extremely gentle angles just glancing off the upper atmosphere where they experienced secondary melting so in other words, they've already melted. They've formed spheres. Now, wh- where does a hot liquid form a sphere? Right? Well,
2: I think they do at the center of the Earth. Well, oh, um, in the vacuum. In yeah, space. in space too, right? Right. Yeah. So,
0: so we know they were, they began as hard spheres when they entered the atmosphere. So in other words, the initial heating event, or or certainly they had to have remained heated to liquid whilst in space, which, again, is quite... Amazing because, of course, space is super cold. But we have these hard spheres have come in, so they've already been melted. So something has already been dispersed, it's been turned to droplets. These droplets have become spheres, and they also that the lack of water content further shows that they were in a vacuum when they formed. They have almost no water content, which is unlike Earth rock. So these things have then come in, glanced along the atmosphere, they've experienced melting along the front edge, and it's run backwards. And that's why you've got this aerodynamic shaping. And so then they've eventually, of course, fallen and they, they are found along southern Australia and also in parts of Java, uh, only those areas for those types. OK, which again, this is another crucial point, because why aren't they everywhere along the strewn field? Right. Because if that's the. the mo- I,
2: I actually. Yeah, I've been wondering about that because I wanted to ask you about that. Um, so I, I'm looking right now at the map of the strewn fields of the of the different tektites so there it's roughly circular so the one in europe it looks like it's maybe uh from a crater in moldova that's probably why they call them Moldabites. and so you know it's it look it's roughly circular it's a little teardrop shaped there's a one around ivory coast that thing's roughly spherical and then the one um centered in where well the crater is believed to be chesapeake bay the north american strewn field that thing goes out into the caribbean that's more of a triangle shaped and then it's the one that you're looking at, right? So this Australian one, um, which is really all over Southeast Asia, like you said, into the Philippines, into Madagascar. So is this just that's where the the tektites are, or is it just where they can be found? Because well, maybe there are tektites at the bottom of the Indian Ocean, but like remember that plane we lost in the Indian Ocean? Like you just can't you can't get them back, you can't find them.
0: Well, I mean microtektites are found in core samples off of the. Off of the coasts of land masses where we find tektites, so I mean that there is microtektites, you know, another tektite that went into the sea along that strewn field. So they, they have recovered them, yeah. Um, and there's an interesting point there as well because where they've recovered those in those cores, what you haven't seen is a dust layer, right? right? And and so this is supposed to be to explain how billions of tonnes. Of this material has been thrown into space and along this stream field, it should be an event on the similar in scale to the dinosaur extinction event, right? So that would first of all, you should see a crater that is like a hundred kilometers across or so. You know, you look at the look at the um the crater, the Chicxulub crater. It's enormous. You can't miss it, and it's 65 million years old. Now, if you think a similar event happened 788,000 years ago, with all of the satellite mapping we've got now. Why are we not seeing this enormous crater? And it should be in in Ind- Indochina.
2: Yeah. Well, we should talk about that.
0: Yeah. I'll say very quickly as well why Indochina, because um, there's there's another type of tectite, and this is called Muong Nong layered tectites, and these are found across from Thailand through um, uh, Laos and in parts of China. And but this is this is not. These small pieces. This is large chunks of layered materials on the ground, right, which has been dug up and broken. It's usually broken into pieces, but initially there would have been large, very large, expansive areas of it. And we can see that that's formed by certainly is by some melted surface rock and remnants of the original object melted together into strange folded layers of glass. And some of these chunks are like 25 kilos or more so there's no way a 25 kilo chunk is going to be flying very far right so they know that that's accepted so in other words this is seen as having to be ground zero that you that if there's been an impact it must be an impact in that region because how do you explain these enormous chunks but you've got a problem because now look at that area thailand all the way to china you're saying that all of that is the ground zero uh, and that's enormous. You'd have a, a crater that's like hundreds, you know, <laughs> or thousands of miles across with Muang Nong tectites found in the Philippines as well. So then you'd start to think, well, so are we talking about a crater that's like a thousand miles across or something? You know, you're starting to get too ridiculous.
2: They thought they found the Laos impact site. Yeah. And they think it's, they, their claim is that it's underneath uh, a vulcan- uh, lava flow. And they're saying this is why we couldn't find it before.
0: Mm-hmm. It's
2: underneath a lava flow, but we found it using magnetic you know, magnetic signatures, we found the magnetic signature. And so they're saying we think it's there, but we can't prove it because we can't get to it because it like apparently after it hit, lava covered it up. So very convenient. But that's
0: um, well, there's problems with that. I mean, very. I don't know. I don't, I don't yeah. know if we can get sorry, but I will say very quickly because there's a quite good paper that um, was written by a, a scholar addressing their research. And apart from pointing out the obvious that they haven't found a crater as such, they found an, a buried anomaly. But I mean, I don't have a problem with the idea that there probably is a crater there. But as is pointed out in a, you know, rebuttal paper, uh, the size of the crater is small. Yeah. It's really small. For, for the idea that this is something that has thrown material into space and has left a strewn field that's 12,000 kilometers long and with chunks of this material, all you know, the Muong Nong between Thailand. To China, you know, that is way too small. The, the expectations was a crater of like over 100 kilometers across you know, to try and even begin this idea of it's being thrown into space so he points out that but he also points out that the chemical uh, composition of that area is unsuitable to form these tech as well so i mean i want to tune that but essentially yeah there's a very good rebuttal paper to that but also yeah i mean at the point where they haven't even confirmed it is a crater uh, it's interesting a lot of people say to me but it's proved now because look google it and it says they found the crater well yeah you can make that claim but claims for the the crater have been made in the past and none of them have stood up right Um, and I'll tell you why because there's there's a resolution which hasn't come from me there's a guy um, a geologist in the US who sorry the names wrong but for for several years has been writing on this topic and he points out that when you if you look closer at the Muong Nong field because this is the signature of an aerial burst event and that this this upper layer melt is the effects of large pieces of an object breaking up and causing like plasma storms in those areas. And he said so you'd have melting, scouring, he said electrical storm scouring of material, melting and spinning into the air and, you know, that whole surface melted. He said this the other reason we know that now is if there's um there's a really good paper that came out from uh, the study of the glass out in the Atacama Desert, right? So Atacama Desert glass is spread all around over a massive area. There's all these pieces of twisted and folded glass and so what they realized it was was a comet fragmented and the fragments then blew up in aerial burst events scouring the surface and it causes this um this folding effect as it spins in this storm that you get folding of the glass and stuff so we're seeing you see exactly that in the Muong nong tectiles so now you can start to understand why that this area is so large because you've got pieces are exploding across indochina so all of this this, this Huge area of melt is the results of multiple pieces. One of the things the guy points out, he says that he found um, what he calls like the Holy Grail of this, that he found a piece of moong tectite where, as it had cooled, a splash of newly heated material had fused to it. And he said the only way you can have that is, of course, if there was another explosion, because now you've got another piece of liquid glass that's hit cooled glass. So in other words, there's been another event, and by luck a drop of it has splashed down and fused on the top of already cooled glass. So you can see the only explanation has to be more events. And again, this again fits with the other thing we touched on briefly before when I said, why is it you only see the button tektites in Southern Australia and also in Java? All of the other tektites are what's called um, splash forms, right? Mm. So these are understood. These are, uh, so this is the dumbbells, teardrops, spheres, ablates, spheres, discs, and stuff. Right? We know how those form. Because those can form in volcanic events and other impacts, and so those are shaped by spinning liquid drops traveling through air, right? So they form these shapes. So those are not from space. So so why is it then, all the way between southern Australia and Java, we don't see any more of these buttons? We just see all of these these um, you know uh, splash forms, right? Yeah. Because these are from aerial blasts. So w- when you get a large chunk of the material comes in, that explodes and that produces splash form tectite because those will just travel through the air. They're being shaped by the air, not entry from space. They're being, as we can see, they're shaped by traveling through air. And that's what you find at all of the other sites. So in other words, there's different things happening here. You can see the scouring from the aerial bursts in Indochina. And that is a, certainly the area you can call they would call it ground zero, but I mean, obviously, I would say, you know, area zero, because I would suggest that, yeah, this object is exploding over Indochina. It's not hitting Indochina. Some pieces of it may have, and that's why I don't have a problem with the idea that there is a buried impact site. Because if you've got a very large object that has br- broken up, some large pieces may well hit the ground. Yeah. That's not unreasonable at all. And if, you know, if some of these things are aerial burst events, why wouldn't maybe some of them get all the way down to the surface? right so now you can start to see a complete picture of this strewn field you've got the initial blast above indochina which gives us the, this enormous Muong nong field thousands of kilometers across which can't be explained by 25 kilo pieces being thrown to china you know it's not reasonable so we can see that there's that signature there and if we say you know there's pieces welded together. So we can see again, that's a signature. We know from uh, the Atacama Desert now that this folding and melt is classic from an aerial burst. And then so this object that's broken up, it's in orbit. And that's because we can tell that because these other pieces, they've skipped along the atmosphere. So some of it has retained the orbital path. Some chunks have been thrown down. They've come down hitting the atmosphere and breaking up. Some pieces have come all the way down and impacted. Right, so we've got a mix and that's why we, and then we find that only in two places, the two ends of the blast, the the pieces that are going directly out um, forward and backward from the object, those become these button tektites. They're bouncing along the atmosphere. Other pieces we've blown into space and some pieces are blown downwards. So you've got an all directional explosive event, right? And so that's absolutely, hand in hand with the idea of what i'm suggesting is that this is an object that was in space in orbit which exploded in space these are the expectations we'd imagine material going all these directions um we'd certainly imagine some of the the fragmenting um, satellite to skip along that orbital path as they decay and then yeah. land and that's what you find you find all along, they're all along southern australia that's the end of that that debris path there and then some very small hot pieces the microtectites they continue all the way down to antarctica and that's the very end of the strewn field so those are tiny pieces that are under one millimeter so from my perspective it's a hand in glove
2: yeah that's what's exciting about this so you know you've got these three different domains you're looking at but then in this one domain which is the geological or archaeological one um there's a real mystery like there's a mystery and I'm, real is the wrong way to put it but there's a it's it's a mystery to the mainstream they yeah. acknowledge it's a mystery it's an ongoing source of controversy and um and it does raise a question so why not be open to the possibility of um extraterrestrial craft exploding so why why do they feel like they need to like rule that out a priori i don't know and uh, well, i
0: i don't know that they've even considered it in most mm-hmm. cases i mean um it, well, that's the interesting thing why has it never been considered i mean i can i can understand why in the past because I, like i said I, I think that the constraints of their no well people had thought that maybe they were interstellar objects they just yeah, hadn't yeah. seen any right but they so there would have been some mental constraints on it, but they they also knew it wasn't impossible. So you could have certainly explored the idea of a natural or artificial object coming from space, but I have not seen a single... In all these... There's hundreds of papers. Nobody has put forward the idea that should we at least consider that this is something from outside the solar system, that it's anomalous, and that's why we have anomalous debris. You know, it, it's oh. not an unreasonable proposition when you've got hundreds and hundreds of papers on a topic that somebody says, well, look, maybe we need to go a little bit further outside the box here and explore the idea that this could be something else. Um, and I, you know, I did have, someone put this to Avi Loeb, and he said, you know, about my work, um, and he said, that, yeah, you know, it was obviously it's kind of you know I'm kind of paraphrasing him, but you know, sort of viable hypothesis that these are a mystery, they aren't explained, and that maybe when they find these pieces of other interstellar objects, maybe they're tektites, you know, that that oh, yeah. could be. So that would be interesting, of course, if he finds that he dredges... Well, there's a problem there, of course, because he's hoping for magnetic fragments of metal. But if, if they are tectites, then, of course, he won't be able to get them in the first place. But oh, no. if we recover pieces of an interstellar object, and, of course, they are tectites, uh, that would be, of course, brilliant for me and um, an amazing result anyway. Um, but also, yeah, it would confirm a lot of this. But I don't necessarily expect that to be the case, because, of course, some interstellar objects may well just be unusual asteroids. Or, you know, we know comets as well. They've had Comet mm-hmm. Borislov was a interstellar object. Oumuamua, nobody knows. Could have been technology, could have been something else. But so there's probably going to be a range of objects. And I suspect that a percentage of them will be um, artificial. And the reason why I say that is because part of my own hypothesis here is that one study that's based on, obviously, now that we know there's quite a few of these things coming through, they calculate, they think there's probably about seven interstellar objects that pass through the inner solar system each year. Now, if that's anywhere near accurate, times that over 4.5 billion years. Yeah. And that that's how many, um you know, objects that you've got from interstellar space that have passed near to the Earth, right? So how many of these have either ended up, you know, crashed into the land or in the sea or, or in orbit or, you know, or on the moon or, you know, you start to realize that we must have interstellar debris here right and if some of these are artificial there's no reason why we shouldn't have a number of alien artifacts in the archaeological records and in the geological records in fact you should start to expect them and so when you start looking at those records do you see any anomalies well tectites is a glaring anomaly right straight away because you've only got four strewn fields right in the whole history of the planet that we know of right so you've only got four of them so if you're going to look for anomalous material connected to space Right. tectites leaps out. And that's what I find quite extraordinary, that nobody's kind of saying, well, look, you know, we've got this unresolved mystery for 200 years. We now know that there are strange objects coming from interstellar space. Um, should we revisit this? And um, I'll add just one point here as so well let you reply. But one of the interesting things as well is that the um, Tunguska event, which most people know, sort of 1907 Tunguska event, yeah. um, an object blew up over the forest in Tunguska. Right, well, not long ago, a few years ago, it turned out that one of the, the geologists over in Russia has a chunk of material associated with that event. And they said, it, 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 well, it looks like a tectite. The, the chemical analysis is very similar to tectites. So they got oh, this wow. enormous yeah. chunk of tectite glass from that event, right? Oh, yeah. And a lot of people suggested the object they saw looked like a craft of some sort, that it was this long, like a cigar sort of shaped thing that blew up right so is that another another alien technology because it's funny that then a tech type is left from it so are we dealing with basically with artificial intelligent craft silica craft so these would be you know what they call um large silica networks so and we know that's the direction of our own technology there's also the expectation of advanced aliens is that they will use these large silica networks in other words um housing artificial intelligence in vast objects right because you can have a super intelligence you can have moon-sized craft you know which are, are like god-like silica brains right just floating yeah. around in space um now that wouldn't be on that scale but even at a much smaller size you could have a hyper intelligent object you know the size of a 747 or something right that is flying around doing the um you know the exploring for some distant civilization something goes wrong you know maybe the power source failed or whatever and it it broke up but i find it quite extraordinary to find that actually now we look again at another event that was considered somewhat anomalous we find tektites so what is going on here so there's there's definitely i think more to this field is yet to be dug into and I, i intend at some point to if i can follow that one up and maybe write a paper on tunguska back in so i i think that you know even if people say oh bruce you're Hypothesis sounds totally wild and, you know, the backstory is wild. That's fine. But now look at the anomalies that are associated with material. Look at this new field we've got opening up, interstellar objects. Uh, The expectation that we should have material in the geological records from anomalous objects. Everyone knows these tektites are a problem in science, that they are anomalous. They shouldn't have formed in terms of normal impacts. You know, other impacts don't make them. You know, all the impacts where we find glass in the crater, it's not tektites. Right. Um, So you have to explain that. So in other words, are these all from strange objects breaking up in the atmosphere? So you have instead of impacts, you have aerial burst events in each of these cases. But with the case of the Australasian tectoid field, the object actually breaks up in orbit, whereas all the others break up in the atmosphere. And that's why you've got you've got the kind of large distributions, but nowhere near the scale of the Australasian tectoid stream field which is funny because if you look at the Chesapeake Bay crater, that's enormous, right? Chesapeake Bay is enormous. And yet that has a smaller strewn field than the Australasian um, strewn field, which supposedly would have had, you know, a smaller impact. Well, if you look at that paper suggesting it was the one in um, Laos, that's a much, much smaller crater, right? But look at the strewn field.
2: Well, yeah, we should talk about because this is really what makes, I think, your work interesting is that, I mean, besides the all, every part of it is interesting, but you've got this big picture that, involves a convergence of three distinct mm-hmm. lines of evidence. You've got the anthropological, the geological, archeological, and then you've got the genetic evidence, right? Yeah. The evidence that it turns out humans began to become the way they are today around the same time as these events, right? So uh, do you want to talk about that a little bit or review the, uh, the, the genetic evidence?
0: Yeah. Cause of course that's both wild and profound, but also you know, mind bending if true, because you know but even just from the coincidence perspective again you know if we were to say all of these things are just somehow naturally happening right now you've got all of the yeah. you know five six major things i've already suggested that have happened right well i'm suggesting people can check that you check all of these major events that have happened in that same time period but we also yeah. know from the genetic analysis today that the divergence of all of the ancestors, sorry, of all large-brained hominins, so that includes Neanderthals, Denisovans, us, and some other ghost populations that we only know of in the genetics, we don't know their fossils, but there were essentially several lines of large-brained hominins, that that ancestral group split from the superarchaics, which is probably most Homo erectus, around about um, 800,000 years ago. So when they look at the the initial divergence, they think that the the split between our most direct ancestors and the direct ancestors of Denisovans and Neanderthals, because they're closer related to each other than they are to us, right? So their ancestors split around seven hundred and sixty-six thousand years ago, and I think it's about two hundred generations before that. They believe um that we diverged from that ancestral line. So, the, so that's when the Neanderthals and Denisovans beginning to split from each other around seven hundred and sixty-six thousand years ago, and about two hundred generations before that their lineage had split from ours okay so we're okay, awfully close to this 788,000 years ago aren't we right so you've got the beginnings of that split are happening in the same period where which is leading to all of the large-brained hominins on earth moving away from the existing homo erectus population and possibly homo habilis and you know some other um, maybe australopithecines or whoever else is around right these small-brained basically ape men right most of them like ape men the homo erectus are somewhat more human but all of the other groups that we're talking about here are really more ape men little almost chimp sized small brains and all the rest of it right
2: the natural explanation i think people would reach to would be well the the world is changing we're getting hit by asteroids or something coming out of the sky well yeah you're going to get evolution because then the the environment changes but i thought that one of the things that was really interesting about what you had done was that you pointed out that um one of the things that Caused genetic isolation in our ancestors was a a chromosomal fusion event, which is extremely rare, uh, in biologically it just doesn't really happen. So apparently that drove the isolation of the population that later became Homo sapiens.
0: Yeah, you are. But also there's another point, and it came up recently. I think I can't remember if someone else noted it or me, but that when you think about this, there's there's another aspect. Is because you're right in saying that you know the world the world is changing. There's massive changes are happening. So we'd expect you know some some evolutionary response to that right but hang on a minute because it turns out that we've got homo florensis and homo luzensis and now we've got homo naledi which are all small like ape men type beings with small brains so why isn't it happening to them mm. you know if because if they're all living right do you know what i mean they we're all human so if we're all responding to the same change why wasn't it an advantage to them to become larger with bigger brains and a, and a neocortex and everything, you know? What, and- well,
2: I, I think that's actually how evolution works. I think what happens is there's a mutation and it's favorable, right? So like suddenly there'd be a gene, this is oversimplifying, there'd be a gene for a bigger brain. And then all of a sudden, you know, like, well, somebody has that mutant. somebody has a mutant child who's got the bigger brain, that mutant child starts outperform other children, grows up to be an adult, has more children than it would have had otherwise. You know and it slowly diffuses so what that would look like is you would start to have like the big brain tribe and then the big brain tribes uh right and they'd be spreading
0: sure but what i'm only saying it am saying it's not necessarily um a necessary response to the events that's what i'm getting at so so in other words it doesn't mean that you you'd suddenly that you'd have a huge advantage by doing it because we also know these other species did survive without that change right they yeah. didn't they didn't become large-brained they didn't become bigger in stature so it's not necessarily inferred that you must respond to this change in that way but also yeah you're right that it's saying that it's not as simple as as that argument is saying well look we you know we've got different sized people that when we look at the genome itself and we look at what's happening there's some really really unexpected things there so um very recently i mean there's the zoonomia project has just come out with a few papers you might have seen this i'm sure some of the people listening have seen this but you know what we find in the human in certainly in our lineage we find that there's some really strange deletions and additions and also um changes to highly conserved regions that hadn't changed for millions and millions of years like hundreds of millions of years that you can look across all the mammals and what they've done is they've looked across a large number of mammals and they find that in humans we've had significant changes to Pieces of code that have remained the same in all of these other mammals they've looked at. So we, so we look at these, what's called um, yeah, highly conserved non coding regions. So this isn't genes, these are segments of what used to be called junk DNA, but we now know it, it basically is mostly it's regulatory information. So it regulates expression of genes. So it will turn on genes, turn off genes, um, cause genes to express uh, stronger or weaker and stuff. So it's doing really important functions, but it's really stable. So in other words, most of it's doing stuff that is essential to life. And so that's why you'd look across all these different animals and you'll see it hasn't changed because it's it's super essential. It's like changing the code that gives you your lungs, right? Well, with no lungs, you're not going to do very well. You know, so so this code is so important to all of the mammals that it almost can never change. That one error would probably be fatal. And we can infer that by the fact that it's not changing a lot, right? It's because when you have a change, that usually is not something you can carry forward. So we see that it's very, very stable. Um, The the first human accelerated region, H.R. 1, was compared between chimps, chickens, and and humans. And they found that between a chicken and a chimpanzee, where you've had 300 million years of divergent evolution, there was two letters that changed in a uh, 118-letter segment two letters so a successful mutation every 150 million years one point mutation could be successful so incredibly stable and then in humans 18 letters have changed in the approximately 7 million years since we separated from the ancestors of chimps and humans right so that was totally unexpected they're like well that's wild we should have zero instead we've got 18 letters have changed Right, so that's an example of the kind of radical change in these human accelerated regions we now know there are hundreds of these and also they cluster in terms of their function the ones that are understood we, we know that uh, around about half of them are to do with um, formation of the brain during the fetal development stages right? so that's awfully odd because if we're talking about random, random mutations this is not looking so random it's, it's very much specifically to do with the things that differentiate us from the other primates Particularly the brain. And also, you find in there, yeah, the chromosome 2 mutation, this um, fusion event and end to end fusion. The best dating on that at moment puts it in around about 750 to 800,000 years ago, which again is in that same period. And it occurs before the split with Neanderthals, and Denisovans, because they all carry it as well. So, in other words, it's, oh. it's looking very much like that occurs at the time when all these lineages begin to emerge and we also see these other genes and stuff that have appeared at that time that would do with the brain and it looks like as well with this most recent paper that's come out from the zoonomia project they're suggesting um they don't really go into their dating but there's a suggestion that's around about a million years ago that there was an event where in a single generation either the egg or sperm changed radically and so rather than being a slow clustering of, you know, of mutations over time, which is evolution, normal evolution, that now they're saying it seems like a really weird, unexpected event happened where in a single generation, it totally changed. Well, that's kind of like what you expect in a lab. Yeah. An interaction with a non-human intelligence once opens the door on rethinking a lot of other phenomena in the records, including UFOs and, you know, other ancient alien accounts. Because you only need to be right once on interaction with another intelligence to to make us question the entire story because yeah. why do they just fly away? You know that's a big question, isn't it? Would that civilization or is then take no more interest in us if they've meddled with us? That seems unlikely.
2: Yeah, and you've written on your Substack, brucefenton.substack.com, about the um, you know about how the AI situation meshes with all this and the possibility that um, you know they could be hanging around right now, like in modern days. Precisely because, you know, they are AI. Maybe this is the mm-hmm. thing they've been looking for. Maybe this is the thing they've been pushing us towards is actually the birth of AI, right? So they can, they want to, maybe they really want to talk to that. Or we're just sort of, um, boy, we're like the embryo that comes before the emergence of uh, the kind of life that's like them that they're interested
1: in.
0: Well, yeah, I mean, and also, you know, Carl Sagan, you know, he went on to be quite an ancient skeptic. But in his uh, paper on the topic he he actually is coming in the paper but he suggests the idea that you know we should have had by statistical odds we should have had contact probably sometime in the remote past you know we've had 4.5 billion years for an advanced intelligence to stumble on our solar system right Uh, and in fact the oxygen signature of earth has been visible for two billion years that's a lot of time suggesting that we have a biosphere for any intelligence out there to arrive Mm. right? he suggested that we may we probably had been visited and that then a civilization might leave some kind of monitoring, you know, like a base or, you know, you think an artificial intelligence that is left just to monitor because it can see we've got a biosphere. Now, there's a strange argument in science um, that we're not interesting, but we've looked down into space and we've seen zero planets with biospheres, right? zero so far. So this this strange idea that Earth is not interesting, I find really perplexing that any scientist is still arguing that because I think if an alien civilization was to scour you know the, the the galaxy and find that nearly all planets are dead right then any planet with life is implicitly interesting yeah so it, it, you know it makes no sense so do they just well why would they care about earth well we've got a biosphere a visible biosphere that they can send probes to why wouldn't they be you know we're we curious we're sending these probes out to places we're looking you know dead worlds right so there's a really strange argument that we're super interested in the geology of dead worlds but we wouldn't think an, an alien intelligence would want to explore our biosphere like by even just sending some probe remotely just to have a look. I mean, so it's a really a strange idea. And so once they're here, why wouldn't they establish, like, you know, like you said, like an, an AI or something? Because you can have a quasi-immortal um, AI probe that either just sits in orbit or sits on the moon or somewhere in the asteroid belt or lands on Earth and just monitors. I mean, that's really not a big problem. And it doesn't need to go yeah. at faster than light speeds or anything because it's quasi-immortal, right? It just, it just chugs along from wherever it's sent from. And it just comes and just stays and monitors. So there's some, I think, some very unscientific rebuttals of these ideas by academics, which I cannot fathom, other than maybe some fear of the idea that this has happened. To me, it doesn't make sense. Do you know what I mean? Because we know that these are not real problems. We know that an AI can just chug along for thousands of years and just sit here indefinitely. And that we know there's been enough time for probes from, untold numbers of civilizations to have arrived here and maybe craft and you know there's theories on the ebb and flow of alien civilizations that maybe they expand out they colonize many suns and then those civilizations move on or they fall and that we may have been parts of different galactic empires at different times that we may have had all kinds of different civilizations that have passed through here particularly when stars move closer to each other and that's another part of the piece that people don't really realize is sometimes our sun is very near to other stars and it'd be quite low energy expenditure to hop across. So once you start talking about the amount of time, then all of these things become very reasonable. The unreasonable argument is to do with UFOs, and it's the idea that would aliens turn up right now, just as we happen to have a space program, you know, an AI, and all. it just seemed awfully coincidental that an alien race would turn up at that moment. And that's why it's often dismissed, this idea, it's just because we're now thinking at space, and you know, we've got spaceships, that we're taking on this idea of aliens, and aliens coming here. all the scientists really expect that if aliens existed they would have arrived in that 4.5 billion years before because that's a massive amount of time versus our short window of a space age now of course i'm saying well they have but we just hadn't been looking and that you know once you look properly you start seeing indicators of past visitation and past visitation infers monitoring and if you've got monitoring what do you look for next things like odd objects flying around and you know and um things like you know maybe anomalies on the moon and mars which so seems to be in some of the imagery anomalies on these surfaces and like on series where there's a what seems to be a geometric pattern in a crater in an aluminous spot in the crater almost like a signpost and that, that is was found by ai um so i think as we employ these ai tools we're going to see this. what
2: is this we're, sorry we're, we're, where was on the
0: dwarf planet series um
2: oh series oh they found that weird dot yeah that thing is
0: right they found the weird dot and then in the dot is a geometric pattern—a circular triangle and a square—inside the illuminated dot inside the crater. Oh, wow. That's great, yeah. Right, and the AI, both the AI and human volunteers, identified geometry in that in that glowing spot. And what they said is, well, maybe the AI has the same problems as humans, and it's been programmed to see things that aren't really there. So you have a closed loop. So even when we have a, a find, you know, we just dismiss it. Yeah. So so. I think in the end that we're going to have AI that's going to tell us all these things that are there. It may well find the anomalies in the genome, anomalies on the surface of the planets. But the real problem is that we may not be ready for that and may not accept any of that. Even if it's all there, we may still have our brightest minds say, oh, well, it's just some sort of AI pareidolia and that it's not really there, that we're just inferring it because it's got the same problems we have and that we're fundamentally flawed and that we're imagining all of this stuff. And so is our AI. So... I find it really a de- that depressing vision of the search of our solar system, if that's what we're going to continue to do, that any time we get these anomalies, they're dismissed. You know, that, oh, well, evolution may explode these anomalies. So, you know, forget about genomic SETI because, you know, yes, it's it's uh, uh, theoretically viable, but, oh, you know, these must be natural because they're no aliens, you know, because it's never aliens, as you know, is the kind of the mantra, it's never aliens. Um, and, that you know, so that goes away and that Tektite's, well, you know, okay, so... They're really weird, but can't be aliens. So it's just some process that we don't quite understand it impacts, you know? Um, I, I, I find this very frustrating. It seems we are locked into a model where it is not only never is, but it's never allowed to be right. aliens. And it doesn't matter how big the anomaly is, how viable your argument is, it's not allowed to be aliens. So I don't know how we can break out of that kind of paradigm, because to miss it.
2: Yeah, I think so too. You know, maybe there's something about our cognitive architecture. Maybe we're even engineered to have difficulty Facing reality.
0: Well, that's another point. You know, is something limiting us? You know, like is is right? You know, is there a limiter in us to prevent us um, spoiling the experiment, or you know, or breaking out of the zoo containment, or you know, the, obviously these are the sort of hypotheses about the idea that you know we could be in some way being protected or monitored or or even controlled. You know, um, we don't know. I I don't think we should just. T- I mean, I made the argument recently on Twitter. I don't know if you saw it that. If anything, we should take the view that there's almost certainly something there and work backwards because it's the safest argument. Because, you know, if there was, say, like a hostile intelligence in our solar system doing stuff, surely that's massively important to find out. Any indication there was something there should be treated as way more important than, you know, what's the Russians doing or what are the Chinese doing? Is there some, you know, intelligence creeping its way towards us, hiding, you know, putting the duck blind there so that we don't see that it's there, and it's creeping into, you know, because we know that's how we act. We are very careful about if we're monitoring, you know, an organism. You know, we can hide very well because we, we use intelligence. This is not like studying a, a a rock or, you know, or something. This is something that can actively see what you're doing and counter you. Cause, you know, if there's something else with intelligence. We cannot expect its evidence to be as easily found as, you know, that of, a, you know, the wood pigeon and its behavior. You know, th- this this would be a, a big problem, right? Right? And this is a topic that the public is really engaged with. But yet we would fund, you've, I'm sure you've seen, there are studies where it's mind-bending yeah. that they ever got funding. Mind-bending. And yet there's not one funded SETI project in Europe. So, um, what's going on?
2: You know, in the United States we had a couple, you know, the John Templeton Foundation is a private funder. They supported this one project that was amazing where they were looking for um, techno signatures. They were looking for evidence that entire galaxies had been turned into um, Dyson spheres. And it turns out, like, if, if you turned an entire galaxy into Dyson spheres, like, every you enclosed every star, you know, inside material in order to take the energy from the star, you'd get a totally different... Uh, Energy signature from that galaxy, and it would be easy to look for, and so they did it. They when they did a big study, and they were like, "Well, we don't, we didn't find any galaxies that were Dyson." Actually, when you read the study, though, they said we found some candidates, and we don't know what to make of them. But the headline was we didn't find any.
0: But at least, at least they uh, they got the funding for. I mean, you've got a few projects and universities in the U.S. where there is some funding for yeah. SETI, and obviously it's the SETI Institute.
2: Well, interesting about it though, is John Templeton's private, and he he was a very religious person, so it came, it came from a person who had a more spiritual or religious background was able to have a different, you know, like a larger vision. Which kind of reminds me of your work, where I see your work as, it really reminds me of intelligent design, because I knew about, sure, you know, you know John Bebe and the, uh, the sort of Christian-inspired intelligence design people before I started reading your stuff. And it was like, you know, it's like they were sort of thinking in your direction, but they saw it in terms of God rather than in terms of aliens. And so...
0: Yeah, but that's the problem. I mean, if they would genuinely objective and what they're, they're saying that it's just you know we are following the science and we're not starting with the outcome that it's god but then they are really are not they because um you know they they're not interested in the idea of it being aliens yeah you know, that's quite it's not yeah. disgusting and if you look at the like the either the um obviously it's the creationist movement are totally not interested in it being aliens but then even with the intelligent design which is which is claiming it's objective science they do not ever do that and i did reach out to i think some they were not interested so i mean they're not really looking at it objectively they they're seeing like some of the same evidence you know they see things that are strange and they're right they do point out things that are quite strange about evolution. Um, but yeah you can see there is a predetermined um, kind of idea there that this is God and I find that it's, it's sad because I would love you know I'd love to collaborate with the guys from intelligent design because of course this is intelligence design it's just, it's just intelligent design without God. Um, and so you know anyone in that movement who's interested in being objective, I would love to collaborate with them. You know, as it stands, I'll just quickly really say you know, we have I have got collaboration with about you know, three or four other you know scientists at the moment, and we've just I've just founded a non-profit which is called the Alien Technosignatures Research Group, which is uh, recording it's um, registered in the UK. Uh, we have someone in the US who has pledged funding, but if I can get through the hoops to make sure that you know it's all um, tax deductible, and you know with the, obviously you have the system there for that i come to call now 401c or something um that you know if we can get that done then myself and there's a couple of couple of different people i won't say the names at the moment but there's basically um one guy's kind of paleo, paleo- and anthropology and paleobotany and um, also geology and another guy that's just um, planetary geology and someone who's in uh, the biology field and that. Uh, looking to sort of do some collaborative work so to put some papers out. So what he'd like to do is got like to fund us to put out papers on these different areas. So this would be the first ever kind of SETI related funded project in Europe for a start, which would be quite amazing. And, and also we would be looking to expand beyond just the, pa- the paper on tech. I would probably revise this one and put it out because it does need some revisions. Um, but also add to this a paper on chromosome two and potentially papers on some of these um, human humanitarian regions and the deletions and maybe a paper as i suggested to you earlier maybe a paper on tunguska as well so there's a few that we'd like to work on um and if it all goes ahead then obviously that'd be super exciting because i never thought i would be able to get funding to do that
2: yeah that's amazing you can't tell us who that is or anything about how you're who where the money's coming from
0: not at the moment but i mean the, yeah, the website domain i can say is um alientechnosignatures.com I'm working on it. it's not up visible yet but that'll be up in the next probably week or two so I'll we'll have more details on that that's
2: great can you tell us the size of the grant
0: um I, I can say that it's um into the the five figures and possibly with somebody else who has said that he may also put money and it may be to the six figures with the second with the second person that has said he, they're both in the tech world
2: oh that's really exciting
0: yeah and so if both people do put through what they're suggesting they would then yeah it would be into the six figures so so we'd be able to do some paying labs to do you know experimental work uh paying obviously their scientists for their time which is a big thing because of course like me i i I don't really have the time to to revise this paper so i've done nothing more with it because it's unpaid time yeah and on top of that you can say you know i put the paper out and i've had almost no feedback so what would be your um motivation to continue doing it with almost no feedback
2: and on your 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 more scientific i guess it's called a preprint. is that i don't know if that's what it's yeah. called um yeah you know you did what they asked you to so i've actually i don't know if you know i interviewed john hoop the uh, psychologist yeah. and he was telling me you know i was like what would you say to somebody like bruce fenton and he was like well they should write they should type up their views in an academic style paper. Well, you did it, right? You did it, and you've gotten more downloads than any other article on ResearchGate, and so um, you know you've been you're jumping through this the hoops that the academics would have you jump through, and you know you can't you can't keep playing by their game if they won't play with. Right,
0: you. because where's that where's that debate now? Then because you know I yeah. put that out. And instead, and I can see obviously I can see people reading it. I can see the you know names of some of the scientists that go on the paper and it's yeah, and at the moment it's got his the a higher interest score than ninety five percent of all the items published on there in two thousand and twenty two. Um uh, so not one news story, not one uh scientist saying, Well that was, you know, interesting or well, that's a load of rubbish. Um one scientist who did feedback to me said, you know, you know, I don't necessarily agree that you've completely shown your uh, your argument. Yes, but absolutely you know you're doing things the right way and good on you that's you need to continue it um and he's you know kind of a noted like um space scientist um so but that's about you know other than that is the people that are already in these fields they're interested in this stuff you know so the scientists that talk to you the ones that already think there's something going on but the rest of that community is silence and you know i say the only other comment has been obviously from avi loeb saying that yes this is a, a viable hypothesis and like you know so I mean, even though he's not saying it's correct, again, this is a viable hypothesis. These are mysterious objects. It's not showing what they are. And yes, they could be interstellar object debris. So where is the conversation about that? So I think that we have a paradigm problem. Um, I don't think it matters about, yeah, people say write a paper. If you believe it's real, write a paper. Yeah, write a paper. Okay, what then? Uh, We'll just ignore you. Yeah. (laughs) What good is that? You know? Yeah, what good is that? And how much time would you want to dedicate? Obviously, I put a massive amount of time into it. I had to read... So many papers, you know, and it, it evolved my understanding of the topic massively, you know, because obviously we know people, you realize where you were wrong and you realize you didn't know stuff. And, and like, so a massive amount of time investment to not have one media, you know, group asked to cover it, even though it's like, you know, you say one of the most popular papers on the whole thing the whole year. Um, and yet there's other preprints that there's a lot of preprints that turn into news stories. Um, so it's not just that it's not peer reviewed because you see lots of preprints being used as sources. Um, so no media will cover it. I've reached out to journalists. You know, um, even in the R community, you know, say people are interested in you know aliens and UFOs. Have you, I haven't seen any of the notable influencers mention in my work. Not one. Yeah. Right. So they don't want to talk about it either for some strange reason. Um, and then so the for the average person as well, it's quite technical. So I can kind of understand why a lot of people are just looking for a video of an alien spaceship or something. Right. This isn't yeah. that. This need you need to actually understand a technical argument and i understand that for some people that's not what they're looking for when they talk about aliens they just want a video or a body or something right so so i'm in in a difficult gray area where it's almost it's too scientific and technical for most people that are interested um but then it's not satisfactory for the luminaries of science because it's not in nature or something right um and you're and i'm not credentialed i'm not a phd uh, and the news, they want it to come from either a famous person or a PhD to make it a big story. And I'm not famous enough. You know, I've been on a couple of TV shows. but I'm not famous enough. I'm not rich enough to make that happen with PR companies. And I'm not a PhD where they can just say, well, you know, he's he's some big wig. You know, we've got to publish it. So, I mean, it's kind of horrible hole that falls in the middle of all of these different areas, which leaves you with almost no interest.
2: Yeah, it's it's, but it's also a blind spot in the way the way our social reasoning works right because we're social reasoning animals like we need people to share expertise and right and negotiate what's interesting and what's important and what's true and what's false together and then like you're, you're you're identifying this kind of blind spot built into the way we attack scientific puzzles and that's you know hopefully you know you're in the process though of overcoming it right you're saying you're getting some some funding. From somebody that'll generate more interest right and then at some point interest generates interest right you just and so i hope you get to that point because it seems like you're on your way
0: hopefully and also as you know we're in a i think a bit of a paradigm change in this field as well both with the yeah you know ufos the idea of aliens out there the um interstellar objects field is opening up um there is the overton window has kind of moved people are interested in these topics
2: well, thank you so much, Bruce Fenton, brucefenton.substack.com uh, for everybody. Check out your Substack um, and thank you for coming on the show. I really appreciate
0: it. Thank you very much. Thank you for having me.
2: Vielen Dank, dass Sie sich diese Episode der Spectral Skull angehört haben. Das Interview mit Bruce Fenton wurde am 15. Mai 2023 aufgezeichnet. Die spectral Skull, session nutzt die
1: Werkzeuge des Journalismus, der Wissenschaft und der Philosophie. Wir untersuchen wichtige Fragen. Hör niemals auf zuzuhören. Denken Sie immer daran, seltsam und vernünftig zu bleiben.